listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. You know, friends, I think one of the unique sources of anxiety for a leader is when you have to build something, whether you're building a ministry or a new program, or even, for example, launching a church. I think church planters face a level of pressure and anxiety that the rest of us just don't know about because of all that's on their shoulders to get done. But not just church planters, really anybody who starts an organization from scratch knows what it's like to build it from the ground up. And I was keen for this podcast to feature a couple that have done that very thing. Today's guests, Doug and Julie Crozier. Doug and Julie are the founders of the Solomon Foundation. Doug's the chief executive officer of the Solomon Foundation. Solomon Foundation is this amazing organization. It's a ministry. It kind of acts like a bank. It's, it's technically what's known as an extension fund. In, in essence, they receive investments from people and then they lend that money out to churches to help churches uh, get an extra leg up, particularly as it relates to building buildings. So, for example, in our case, the Solomon Foundation came along in 2011, 2012, lent us some money so that we could go from being a portable church meeting in schools to building our own building. And a lot of reasons, a lot of ways, that's why our growth exploded as a church is because we had a, a permanent home. And I was keen to talk to Doug and Julie about what comes along with building an organization from scratch, because not only is Doug particularly gifted at that, he is an entrepreneurial minded leader. But the other thing that's always struck me about Doug, I've known he and Julie for several years, is his ability to declare values and then imbue those values, not just into their ministry, but deep into their staff. Doug's ability to find and hire and retain really quality staff is really amazing to me. Everybody I know at the Solomon Foundation are phenomenal human beings, and they do incredible work. So I was excited to sit down not just with Doug, but also with his wife, Julie. Even though Doug is the CEO, it really is a partnership between the two of them. And you're going to listen in this interview as you hear that push-pull that happens between them that really makes their leadership great. Here's Doug and Julie now. Doug, let's start with you. Yes. Um, I think I've openly told you, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on your gifting at building an organization. So I think I think you are naturally good at casting a vision, recruiting people to that vision, and then deepening the values. I'd love to hear just what you have to say about your own awareness of your ability to build and lead a healthy organization. Well, I think, Steve, the, the key thing for me is just finding good people. Uh, you know, if you look around our organization, uh, you'll find people that are common. You'll find people that uh, may not have all the letters behind their name with degrees. But what they are is they have passion for what we're doing. Uh, they want to be part of a team. Uh, and we build a team really around the people. Uh, and, and that's what makes, makes things happen. What are the knockout factors for you when you're interviewing somebody? You intuitively know, I think, pretty early on if this is somebody you think is worth pouring into versus somebody you think, oh, I don't think they're going to be a fit. Well, one of the key things I look for is what challenges have has that person had in their life and have they overcome that challenge? Because that's going to be a key indicator for me as to when they get into a challenging situation working at the Solomon Foundation, how are they going to react to that? Okay. Well, since you brought up challenges, how about sharing for us a challenge that you faced that you've had to overcome? 
Well, I think the big challenge I had is, uh, you know, I've been blessed with a great career. Uh, and this really this last 25 years has just been, uh, I, I could have never predicted in my lifetime I'd be where I'm at today. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. I got into this industry really through my pastor at Mission Viejo Christian Church, George McElroy. Uh, he, and he introduced me to Church Development Fund. Um, and, and I had this great opportunity to serve on the board of CDF. Uh, for four years and then was asked to come on staff uh, as the COO and then and then eventually the president and uh, spent, uh, you know, 15 years there uh, developing a team, developing a mission, developing uh, just this great organization. Um, and uh, and then some just things just kind of fell apart, uh, you know, nothing ethical, nothing moral, just things just fell apart organizationally uh, really above me. And, and I was the person that suffered those consequences um, and left that organization um, thinking, gosh, what, what am I going to do next in life? And um, boom, I had several pastors within the restoration movement literally um, ask me to start a new fund within days. Yeah. So when things started to go south there, what's it like for you? in your brain or wherever you kind of spin, I'm guessing for you, it might be your brain where you, do you, do you tend to spin mentally? I, I do. I think, you know, the big thing for me is when I get into those situations and, and maybe it's a struggle with the board or it's a struggle with other leaders, my concentration always focuses on the staff, focuses on my team and advancing the organization. Uh, because I think that's critical in any organization. All organizations have issues, okay? And the key thing is, is that when those issues happen between leadership, you have to keep the organization flowing. And I think the great thing that, that happened at CDF is that mission continued, continues today. They're doing a great work. Uh, and the bottom line is, uh, uh, you know what, the kingdom is the winner. Yeah. Okay. So now, Julie, um, obviously this affects you as well. You and Doug have always been in partnership together. You guys kind of built Solomon Foundation together. What's it like for you? Doug comes home, things are getting difficult. Um, one of the things my wife and I have learned is the impact on, like if a leader is uh, having an, uh, a challenge, they often do bring the challenge to a loved one, like a spouse, and the spouse, there's an impact on the spouse as well. But the spouse isn't able to be there to have their own battle. You're kind of experiencing it secondhand. What's that like for you? Well, one of the great things about the Solomon Foundation is that I've been able to be a close participant from the beginning where I didn't have that advantage at CDF. So at the Solomon Foundation, Doug has um, brought me on. I was his first employee. Yeah. And then as he gr grew, um, there was less and less put on me, but I've been able to maintain a, um, a close participation with him and the vision and, you know, more of just oversight. So it's been great to be able to do that because then when he does come home, I have more details about what's happening so that um, I can work through that with him. And he, he will hear from me maybe when he won't from other people because he's more defensive um, with anxiety, you know, he, you know, he will want to defend his position. Whereas I may be able to speak into that just a little bit more maybe than somebody else. Cause he will agree to listen 
and maybe I have like uh, a different perspective based on the um, the lower ranks of the organization and what's happening, what their um, angle is as to what's going on. And so maybe maybe I can just help in that way of kind of broadening his view of um, situations. And I the other thing I, I try to do is um, try to bring God into as far as Let's pay attention like to what he's doing. Like if there's red flags or everybody's, there's not a consensus, let's pay attention to that rather than trying to force a square into a round hole. You know, let's just take a, take a breath and assess maybe we need to pay attention or um, change pace or gears or something just a little bit to accommodate whatever is happening out there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, it makes me actually want to go back a couple of steps to the values of the Solomon foundation. I'd love to hear from both of you on this. I first heard them, um, at your first annual meeting in San Diego, and I'd never quite heard values like them to the point that I'm thinking, I wonder if our church should add fun as a value. How did you come <laughs> up with them? Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we had our first board meeting on December 7th, 2010 uh, at the uh, Hilton Garden Inn at uh, Indianapolis Airport. Um, and um, that evening, I went down to look where the room was at, and I ran into Barry Cameron, and I said, hey, I want you to do the devotion to open up our first board meeting, because obviously he has such a key role in this whole whole uh, organization. And the next morning, he came in um, with those five points uh, and after that, I took those and said, those are going to be our core values. Uh, and he picked up bits and pieces from different places and different things that had happened, I think, at the course of, uh, of our friendship over years. Uh, of course, we got to have fun one when uh, I was looking at interviewing audit firms. And I saw an audit <laughs> firm that had a core value of have fun. And I thought, if accountants can have fun... We can too. Yeah, for sure. And I think the fourth core value is uh, helping churches get to the next step, <clears throat> which has really kind of been my theme in ministry uh, for the last 25 years. Yeah. Anything you want to say about it too, Julie? I mean, in some ways you're kind of the chief, one of the chief fun officers, I think. <laughs> That's true. I told him in the beginning, I'd been to so many rubber chicken dinners that if we're going to have events, it's going to, the food is going to be good and we're going to be going to nice places. So that, that worked out pretty well. So we could enjoy what he's doing. Doug's a great guy and he thrives in what he does. So not everybody is as um, good at that as he is. So having a, a great location and good food to eat really makes it more fun. Yeah. What makes it more fun about that? Uh, I think pastors really look forward to, like, if our theme is refresh, you know, for them, it's like they're, they've been stuck in the winter and it's gloomy and dark and whatever. So having an opportunity not just to have to refresh their mind, but to refresh their bodies, too, by being able to go to Arizona and play golf or Florida and snorkel or, you know, just being able to, um, and the wives is a big part of it too, as he has, um, had me be, come alongside him in the, in the Solomon foundation. We have 
extended that to wives of pastors. It's really important for us to um, have the wives participate because they're such a, a huge part of their husband's ministries in their churches. And we felt we feel like we want to include them. We want them to be refreshed too. We want to be for them to have each other and know there's a network. They're often more isolated than the pastors are because they're in the trenches. So, so for them to to be able to experience each other. So we really, we really Doug especially really cares about the church's um, health and the leaders of those churches and where they're at. And so it's it's been a big part of offering them that opportunity to come together and enjoy not just themselves, but the other pastors and their wives. Yeah, we were, I think we um, started working with you guys, I think it was late 2011, if I remember right. Yes. And then we got the invitation to the first annual meeting, San Diego, and uh, not knowing you guys or um, Solomon Foundation, of course I didn't bring Lisa, (laughs) because why would I drag her to a banking meeting? (laughs) And I think the first time I called her was the moment I got to the hotel room, one of the nicest hotel rooms I've ever stayed in. And I'm like, I can't believe, like, this is amazing. And then I think I called her again after the first meal. And then I think it was at SeaWorld that you took us all to SeaWorld. And I was the third wheel at every (laughs) uh, company um, because I just didn't understand. You had to apologize to Lisa. Oh, profusely. (laughs) I just didn't understand... um, the value for people who work hard in ministry are being spoiled. And I think that's one of the, it's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that you guys promote fun is you do spoil good people. Is there anything you want to add to that? Well, there's a couple of things I'd add to that, Steve. Well, first of all is, is that we encourage the wife to participate. Yeah. Uh, and, and we do that here with our staff too. It's very important that the spouse of all of our staff members I mean, our Christmas party includes uh, spouses. Uh, different events that we do here include spouses uh, because we really do look at, at as this as a family, both internally uh, with our employees and board and also externally uh, with our pastors and wives. And, you know, our upcoming event that's, that's happening in Hawaii, um, we're, we're doing something different. We're inviting not only the senior pastor, the lead pastor, but also either the executive pastor or the uh, lead elder, uh, and they all have to bring their wives. It's mandatory uh, simply because we just feel that's kind of the center point of of who we are and making sure that everybody participates. Yeah. Okay. So, Doug, I think you have a... um unusual insight into the pressures that pastors face because you spend so much time with pastors and you you kind of are a pastor to pastors I think what are you seeing nowadays that um what's an example of a pressure that you're seeing pastors be under nowadays wait I think we live in a world that's changing uh um rapidly Uh, and we could talk hours about that but but I think what I see across the the uh the church world is I go to an annual meeting um, for DILA, which is the group of all the uh, the denominational and affiliate group lenders, uh, and I see all of my main mainline uh, denominational friends, their funds are dying, uh, and everything that's going on and all the changes that are going on within their doctrine, within their church, and I see all these pastors that are associated with that uh, that are all struggling. 
and I think the great thing about our movement of churches, or the Restoration Movement Church, is, is that we are strong. Uh, we are doing great things, but there's challenges. There's always challenges in that. And, and so my goal is I want to make sure I know exactly what's going on with the pastor. I want to know exactly what's going on uh, with him and his staff. I mean, I've, I've been in situations where I've had pastors call me and say, I'm, I'm going to my elders meeting tonight to resign, but I needed you to know first and I needed you to know why. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time trying to convince guys not to get out of the ministry um, and I spent a lot of time in elders meetings where there's huge conflicts between the lead pastor and the staff and the elders. Um, and so the better relationship I can have with both groups, not only the lead pastor and staff, but also the elders, uh, it just allows that church to be more healthy, in my opinion. Uh, I don't have all the answers, Steve, but here's what I know I can do. I can go find people that can come in and help in situations. I may not have the answer. But I can go help that church by saying, hey, here's four people you need to go talk to. Here's someone that's been in your shoes before uh, and allow them uh, to be able to, to heal. Hmm. Yeah. Julie, what's your take on that question? What do you see as some of the bigger challenges or pressures that pastors and their spouses are facing? One of Doug's most repeated phrases is um, the two biggest reasons for church failure is moral failure in the pulpit and leadership meltdown. So I've heard that a lot. And what he just said, you know, he travels a lot to um, go work through issues with uh, elders and pastors. And so I think that kind of differentiates us from other church extension funds because it's it's costly. It, it's expensive, and it's also, you know, takes Doug's time. You know, he really does pour himself into these churches. So um, I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, that that's taxing um, on him as well. But it's part of it's part of our mission, you know. And I think that when when you see what God is doing and what He is blessing, it's it's crazy. It's like we can't possibly keep up with this, you know. So if it wasn't him doing this, there wouldn't be that excitement or you know feel the feel for our staff. Like we're gonna we're gonna do it somehow. We're gonna make this happen, you know. So thankfully we get that blessing along with it because everybody works a lot here and the pace never slows down. why we created a podcast called The Monday Morning Pastor. It's a weekly podcast to encourage, equip, challenge, and resource pastors and kingdom leaders each Monday morning. We want to tell and hear stories of hope and encouragement in the midst of this unique place and culture where the negative ministry stories seem to get all the airtime. 
Our hope is that these stories resonate with and remind pastors why we stay in the game. It's a podcast that gives pastors hope and a safe place to be people who need to receive the good news on the day where we feel the most vulnerable. So we invite you to join us and listen to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, where pastors can be people. You can find us on kairospartnerships.org, Missio Alliance, or anywhere podcasts are available. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the thesis of my work is that um, burnout has nothing to do with workload and everything to do with chronic anxiety that's unaddressed. That's what you're describing, like the, the, the pastor that can't handle one more toxic elders meeting, which doesn't mean the, I don't mean to suggest the elders are toxic. Right. But the system has become toxic. toxic. Um, most people I know are actually energized by a workload. There's a certain amount of workload you actually need to kind of get the boat above the water. Um, that's, that's your experience as well, you think? Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, okay. It's, it does seem like the world is, you know, obviously creeping into churches. And so the churches are becoming more liberal in what they're doing. So there's, uh, there's always a need for a lot of discussion on what's biblical, what, you know, what is the salvation issue uh, versus just, okay, we're going to have women preaching or, you know, there's just a lot of contentious um, discussion that just doesn't seem to go away. You know, we're going to, they're going to have to deal with it. So there's going to be a lot of variety of opinion from a church of a thousand people and more, you know, everybody's got an opinion. So it's, it's a, it's a lot of work to work through all that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great thing about our movement of churches, Steve, is, is that they're growing, they're dynamic, they're challenging. There, there's, yeah, there's, there's lots of issues, but, but the main thing, okay, is the main thing. And as long as we stay to the true doctrine of what we believe as a group, that's the main thing. And I think that's what's, that's why our churches are exploding in growth. Yeah, that's interesting you say it. We have had several people come and go from Discovery who want to fight about things that we are not interested in fighting about. And it is a main thing issue. They have a strong opinion on what we consider to be a non-essential in Scripture, for example. Yeah. Hmm. Well, if you guys are ready, I think we should face, uh, like a man and woman, the gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. So um, what I typically do is I'll, I'll give a little context so you f- can answer, and then I'll edit out the context so people just hear the question. So the first one is what we are talking about before we hit record, that I think the primary issue is most people don't know they're anxious until they're gripped by anxiety. They're, too, they're already down the path. So I try to help people. Uh, the, the easiest way to begin to know you're anxious is physiologically. So let's take turns. Uh, each one, either one can go first. If you had to choose between a spinning mind, a racing heart, a tightening gut, or clenched shoulders, where does anxiety first start for you? Spinning mind, racing heart, tightening gut, clenched shoulders. So spinning mind, uh, I'm going to worry my way to peace. So that's me. I tend to wake up at night and I'm already working and I believe the lie if I just think harder, I'll resolve it. 
racing heart would be like, you've had 10 cups of caffeine. So tightening gut is a sickening feeling, like a nauseous, and then just obviously the clench. What do you guys think? I think my spinning mind. Yeah, I'm always analyzing different options and alternatives and trying to figure out, okay, is it path A, B, or C, or are other people, you know, is what, what are the politics involved in the situation? And, and so for me, I think it's the greatest anxiety is the spinning mind. Yeah, okay. Which then leads to sleepless nights, and, and then that can lead to physical issues. Yeah, it starts, you yeah. first notice it in your mind, right. and it might spread. Yeah. Yeah, that's me too, yeah. All right, Julie? The clenching tension, body tension. That's where you first notice mm -hmm. it. Have you noticed it spread or does it tend to just stay? Oh, it, it definitely spreads to all of what you said because at night then it just goes out of control sort of and then um, I feel sick. <laughs> yeah. So all of it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm tense. That's where my first red flag is. You're always asking Doug for a back rub. Nah, no. sure. <laughs> Not so much. Yeah. If I got, if I, you know, got it, but <laughs> the great, the great. Thing I have all kinds of is, things. Uh, um, I think our my Julie and I, our relationship is unique because uh, Julie and I were best friends for seven years before we dated. So we knew each other. We knew each who each other was uh, after being friends for so long. Then we fell in love, and, and so we have this relationship that that's pretty open about stuff and, and so we don't hold stuff back. Uh, we're pretty open about what's happening and you know we we if we have difference of opinion we we talk that out. Yeah, if, you know, if you if you saw a calendar meeting in the Crozier home, um, <laughs> it's pretty it gets pretty uh uh pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, just because I work my calendar through her uh, because I'm gone 35, 40 weekends a year. Yeah. And so we work through all that in advance. So we work four months in advance on our calendar. On and a debate. That creates lots of uh, discussion. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Hefty discussion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing is, I, my experience is most leaders are generally others focused. And so sometimes we're the last person to know when we're not well. How do each of you know when the other is not well? I mean, emotionally not well. I, I think uh, for me, I can tell uh, just from being around her and, and seeing her body language and uh, she'll she'll not talk. So I know something's wrong, you know, things like that. And, uh, and what, what I've learned in in leadership, Steve, is uh, the higher up you are in the organization, the less you know what's going on in the organization. Yeah, Colin Powell, one of his uh, golden rules. Yes. And so for me, um, when I'm, when I'm here in the office, I walk around, I talk to every employee. I try to do that once or twice a week, uh, just so I get a feel of what's happening because I am usually the last to know. Yeah. Julie, we're going to pause the question. I'm going to get back to you on when do you know that Doug's not well, but it, it strikes me, Doug, I have the same challenge just yesterday. We have a new employee. She's been a follower of Christ like a year, year and a half. She's amazing. She's a great leader. But I walk into the lobby uh, where our staff is. We've outgrown our offices. We're all now kind of out in the open. And there's a chair that looks like she had just sat in it. There's a, some baby stuff. She has a baby at work right now. And I say to her, were you sitting in this chair? Because I was about to sit. And she says, I was not sitting in that chair. And the lady next to her says, yes, you were. <laughs> and she was trying to be deferential to the pastor. Right. 
And I said to her, oh, we're, we don't do deference to the pastor of this church. Mm-hmm. We're brothers and sisters. Like I obviously have different authority and power, mm-hmm. but how is that for you? You're a human being, but the further up in an organization you get, the more people forget you're a human being. And they do treat you more like the title than the Doug. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think you have to distinguish, uh, am I Doug Crozier or I'm the CEO of the Solomon Foundation? Yeah. I'm both, but in certain situations, I have to to, to, to kind of dissect that uh, relative to the situation I'm in. Um, I've always been a person that's outgoing. I've always been a person that uh, I tell it like it is. Um, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. But I'm very open with our employees. Uh, our employees, we, we, we have a very open relationship uh, mainly because we're a family. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then Julie, how do you know when Doug's not well? Um, he stops talking and he's just going to power through. So, um, he doesn't want to take a time out and explain things to me and slow, slow it down. So he's, he's hit some obstacle and he, I think of it as hurdles. Instead of jumping them, he's just powering through them. Have you ever seen somebody do that? It's like, so I feel like that's, I'm watching him do that. Yeah, and that's the sign. You're Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's time we had a chat. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, uh, There's all kinds of different anxieties. My interest is only chronic anxiety. So I'm not talking PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder. Chronic anxiety is what happens next after you don't get what you think you need. Chronic anxiety is, is a need you believe you have that you don't really have. And that's what generates it. That's why I believe pastors burn out or have an affair or that, that becomes the symptom of this unaddressed chronic anxiety. So for me, because I, I mentioned feeling like I was stupid growing up, I need people to think I'm smart even though I don't actually need that. People can think whatever they want and I'm fine, but I believe uh, they need to think I'm smart. I need people to like me. I'm a chronic people pleaser. So we all have like 30 to 50 needs like this, these little needs based on a complex set of reasons. Um, Are either of you able to name a need that you think you have that you don't really need that makes you anxious when you don't get it? That's a good question. That's a great question. I, you know, that's, that's a hard one to answer. So it is on the very, spot. Very, very hard to, to answer. Yeah. He's defensive, and that is because he doesn't want to be wrong. He doesn't want, right? It's he doesn't like, want to fail. Failure. Yeah. yeah. If you feel like you or the organization is failing or you're letting someone down or they're letting you or something like that, is that that um, creates anxiety. Yeah. 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 Respect for me is one of them. Uh, we run a household with high respect in our house. And in my kids' early days, some of their friends didn't have the same values. And the way I know I get anxious is I have an overreaction. He's just a seven-year-old kid, but I'm ready to, like, fight. That, that's not me being right. That's me being anxious. So that's another example. Julie, you want to try to play? I recognize the tough... Putting you on the spot. Uh, hmm. Well, I know that um, we were talking about, you know, the tension is a, a red flag for me. So um, I went through a lot of that as a parent. 
you know, learning how to parent. How am I going to parent these kids without destroying them? So I would recognize, you know, I'd have to start paying attention to what those flags were. But uh, as far as what was behind them was just kind of, um, I don't want to deal with this. You know, I, I'd rather be doing something else. So I don't know what that word is, but I think it, as a parent, you, you have to sometimes just let go, die to your self-will. You know, you have to die to that and just completely be okay with whatever's going down right now, you know. So that is something for me because um, I want to get I want I get my teeth in something, you know, I don't want to I don't want to let go until there's resolution. And that's just not going to happen sometimes. Yeah, it's some form of a needing the agenda to be finished or a yeah. control thing or I something. A control freak. Yeah. So if you're not getting your way with your kids, which is a guarantee, mm-hmm. you especially when they're younger. Or with him, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to talk him to death and he's going to stop talking because he doesn't want to change his mind. You know, whereas I'm not going to give up. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you've definitely scratched on an interesting itch where oftentimes another way you know you're chronically anxious is when your solution makes it worse. So if your solution <laughs> is there, well, I'm just going to say more words. I'm going to use more words with Doug. Right. That's, that's often a sign too. Yeah, but I think recognizing that stuff about yourself is really helpful because I had someone tell me once, you know, it's like you think of it as flipping a switch. So it's like you're all anxious about something and you know, you're like this and you recognize, oh, I'm like this. So you flip the switch and open your hands and relax into something else. That's right. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing about chronic anxiety is the theory is it's always contagious in any group and people catch it like you catch a cold. Uh, you've been in more than most elder meetings, Doug. I'm guessing you have seen anxiety spread in a group. It doesn't have to be an elder meeting, but does a story come to mind? Uh, I've been in I've been in several elders meetings in my career where there were almost times where they were knocked down, drag out physical fights because one guy got physical, one guy got up, maybe slammed the table, and that just spread around the room, and uh, you know it just it. It was so disheartening to see that, but you could see it happen almost instantly. Yeah, and you're the least surprised person too, right? You yeah. know where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Julie, do you have an example of where you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Yeah, I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the roles I've had for Doug is um, he's a little unapproachable at times. And if he says <clears throat> something to his staff, like jump and they'll say how high when really they're not a hundred percent on board with whatever's happening. So I sort of play that role where I pay attention to sort of the ground noise. And if there's anxiety, you know, swirling around the room, then that's where I, excuse me. We can pause and get you water too. No, I'm good now. Yeah. Um, I can play my wife card and have a conversation at home where I just need you to pay attention to the ground noise a little bit and maybe you can adjust or alter a little bit and pay attention. This is how they're experiencing the consequences of your decision. Maybe they have something to say, you know, where it can ease their anxiety when they feel like they've been included or heard. 
Um, does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I, I do think a source of anxiety for people is when they don't feel seen. Yes. Um, and I think a source of an of anxiety for a, a high level leader is um, people catching up to speed on the necessary. I don't know how to say the the needed productivity level. And he's not a weed person where I am, so. I can summarize all that in, you know, a, a quick conversation. Yeah. So one of the things we did at the Solomon Foundation, which I think has been very, very healthy for, for all of our leadership team, is Julie serves on the leadership team, even though she doesn't have a title. So she's not a senior vice president. She's not the CEO. You know, she is just part of the team, uh, and she really blends in well, and uh, she can speak her mind. Um, on, on different issues and subject. Without people, worrying about getting fired. Listen. She can't be fired. Be like, very tricky, it wouldn't it? Very tricky <laughs> See you at home. You <laughs> had the firing conversation. See you at home. Yeah. But, you know, she's, she's been around uh, and involved in what I do for 25 years. And so that wisdom coming into a meeting where I'm charging ahead and I'm trying to take a hill and there's a timeout by her and says, no, wait, we, we need to slow this down and we need to do this. The rest of the people listen but more importantly, then the rest of the people start to participate. Because if she can say it, that means they can say it. That's really good. You guys are actually describing a technical tool called differentiation, which is Julie's ability to be fully connected to you, Doug, without being infected and fully connected to others without being infected. It's quite a skill. A lot of people think that it's, it's about standing alone, but it's actually about the ability to define something while staying connected to somebody. So. That's you know, what you I worked guys just at the church. I was uh, administrative assistant to the pastor, and he was like chairman of the elders. So this goes way back, you know. So we're very practiced at this before the Solomon Foundation ever happened. When did you first notice this necessary skill? This isn't about Doug. It's just a fascinating idea that on the church staff, you're intuitively understanding the challenge of the dynamic. Yeah, because he would he would come up with a perspective based on his experience. I'm like, oh, time out. You don't understand what the staff of the church is experiencing. That changes things. But I think you've also got, it's, that's half of the story, isn't it, Julie? Because you're also seeing the staff doesn't understand what Doug's seeing. Exactly. Exactly. The, the, that top chair is a unique chair. I, I think I'm feeling defensive, not against you. But when I was at Central Christian in Las Vegas, I was an associate pastor. And I did not realize until I became a lead pastor, the canyon sized gap between the chairs. That's also what's true, isn't it, Doug? Well, it is. Here's what I've found over my years uh, in leadership, Steve, is um, don't criticize the person unless you've been in their shoes. And, and so um, for me, I'm not going to criticize people that have a, a maybe a larger role than I do within uh, an industry or something like, because I've never been in their shoes. And, and I learned that through the years that maybe in my younger days, I criticized my boss. Um, you know, when I was in my thirties, I, oh, you know, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, and then too. I was in his shoes. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I thought, like, wow, whoa. you know what? He was doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a good leadership lesson to know that don't criticize your boss because until you've been in their shoes, you don't know what it's like. Yeah, and you don't know, they know things you don't know. Correct. And they have to deal with sometimes discrete information and yeah. Yeah, but that's what, does that put you in a bind though, Julie, where you are, it's, it sounds like you manage that remarkably well. 
it just seems to be my niche, you know, where I live, because it's natural after this many years. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up with the final question then. Um, I think one of the great challenges, particularly for faith leaders, is we tend to conflate uh, our identity as God's child with our vocation as God's employee. I know I do. That's a constant battle for me. And so what helps me is, um, ex- is making sure I'm spending time experiencing the love of God as much as I'm pouring out for others. Uh, John says, perfect love casts out all fear. So to that end, when in your guys' life do you feel most fully loved? I think from my seat uh, as the CEO of the Solomon Foundation, I, I really just feel God's love. I feel God's uh, hand. I feel uh, great when uh, I'm at a grand opening and I've seen a church go from 300 to 1,000 within a matter of weeks and people are being baptized and everything's happening. Uh, and it makes me feel like what I've done to help this church has nothing to do with dollars and cents. It has everything to do about uh, kingdom growth and salvation. You love, if I'm, uh, let me say it and let me hear if I heard it right. You love being uh, useful in God's kingdom to help people. Yes. Yeah, that's what makes you feel alive that, and loved. That floats my boat. Yeah, yeah. Mm, for me, um, I don't know. I feel like that's a... <clears throat> One area where we're different from the pastors and the churches is that we are not pastors. So um, there is a little bit of a us and them yeah. feeling that I get. Um, but I would have to say my my church experience, you know, Sunday, you know, I feel like I really get to worship and just bringing it all to the cross um, is always just so, he's so rewarding. So I, I think that that's it for me. I try to stretch that out over the week, but that's really my pep rally, hmm. you know? I is there a it. particular aspect, Julie, of a worship service? Is it the music? I think it's all of it. I the think, whole deal. I just think the experience of uh, worship as a, um, an outward activity to him and always is like good for my bones. Yeah. That sort of, you know, that his truth is always the truth. It never fails. And so, and then the scripture is just so encouraging as far as to, uh, you know, carry on, you know. So kind of is that respite you need from the week to feel like you're recharged. Yeah, great. Thanks very much. Thanks for being on the podcast. Doug, thanks so much. You bet. Thank you for having us. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 